There's no finer dust available today, and our dust is made from 100% organic, all-natural dust. So you can be sure that you're getting the absolute dustiest dust the world has to offer. Turbo Dust. It's dust. Dust. Side effects may include dust lung, dusty stools, and dust ache. Brought to you by Chalk Dinosaur. Paid for by the Dust Council of Dust Affairs. Yes, welcome to another episode of the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast. My name's John O'Halloran. I am a composer and producer. I release music under the name Chalk Dinosaur. And I also do uh, TV composing, a little bit of video game composing, and random music production jobs uh, that happen to happen upon me what we were just listening to was um that was a chalk dinosaur song that was released in 2017 uh it's called emerald club and it's on the album crystal coast and um that was i really like that song Uh, um i was just checking out uh i hired some horn players to play on that song um and i used the website fiverr.com which is like a freelancing website where people can you know post their services and you can hire people to do pretty much anything you want uh on there there's a lot of you know design jobs writing jobs marketing jobs so i there's a lot of audio jobs too so i um I was just looking on there um, whenever I had learned about this website. Uh, I think my cousin Bobby told me about it. So I was checking out, you know, what people, what kind of services people had on there. And, you know, there was a trombone and trumpet. You know, there was a bunch of players that would play on your song for a price. And, um, I was just looking through my emails and I I hired that trombone player um to play this melody that I had written with Nick, my brother, and uh that was that came out to be a $31 trombone recording. Paid 31 bucks for the trombone. And he did a great job. Like he really played that you you can't hear it as much in the segment that I played in the beginning of this podcast, but when that melody happens the first, or no, when that melody happens the second time, there's one time in the song where the melody happens and it's just the trombone playing that melody. And uh, he really plays it with a lot of touch and um, it's just really, really well played. So I was super happy with that. And then I hired a trumpet player to record some that that same melody but in a higher octave and then also harmonies and that job cost $69 so in total I spent about 100 bucks on horns for that which you know that's pretty good for what I got um and then uh I think I also I played saxophone at a certain point in that song um which I used to play saxophone in middle school and I like it, but you know, there's just too many things 
too many things to do to really to really be good at everything. Um, it was like good enough to blend in with with the other horns going on, but you know I'd love to be able to to play better. But you know I hardly uh, make time to play my primary instruments. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, another thing I did with that particular album was I when the mixes were done the recordings and the mixes were done I hired uh, someone at a studio in Pittsburgh to run it through a tape machine like a reel-to-reel tape machine um, you know like you would find at a recording studio you know it's a better quality tape than a cassette or um, you know like a consumer level tape machine but you're gonna get the uh the nice tape characteristics uh what are tape char- characteristics why would i why would i run this pristine digital production through tape um well part of the intention of that album was uh an aesthetic like a vintage aesthetic and nothing can really do what tape does like tape there's tape emulations and they do they do a pretty good job but it's really it's a different thing when you actually run it through tape it uh it sounds a certain way and it's not going to sound that way if you run it through a tape emulation um not saying that those don't have value i use them all the time but uh running it through the real thing really gives it that little extra mojo which is what i wanted and uh the studio was a studio in southside um we would later go on to record the 2020 album called spectrum we would record that album at that studio and Oddly, I have a long history with the guy who runs it because he used to do live sound back when, and I knew him from back in 2009, that era, when that was like the first rendition of Chalk Dinosaur and like the first live band and the first shows and everything. So when we were first starting to play in Pittsburgh, he would be our sound guy sometimes. And then I, I f- found this studio in Southside and he's the, uh, he's the guy. So it's a weird history that goes back an oddly long time. So I've known this guy for over a decade. <clears throat> but anyway, the uh, episode I wanted to do uh, this time was a listening and commentary on a new album that's coming out on October 29th. Uh, The album's called Fire on the Beach, and it's another beach-inspired album. So this would be like the third beach-inspired album. The first one was Kitty Hawk Surf in 2010. That was like a 60s surf rock kind of feel. And then I released Crystal Coast in 2017. 
And that one was really heavily centered around the sound of the slide guitar, like the Hawaiian slide guitar, because uh, I had been gifted one of those by Mr. Bradford, who is the father of um, the former drummer and bass player, Rich and Matt Bradford. Um, it's their dad. He was, uh, he's like a genius with electronics, and that's where I got my Fender Twin Reverb from. Um, he bought, he got like an old 70s, silver face twin reverb which was just a certain era of that amp and then he he like modified the electronics to be blackface twin reverb which is the 60s circuitry which um a lot of people prefer but anyway he's a genius with all kinds of gear and now he's getting into restoring mandolins and doing work on acoustic instruments and um yeah he's just he's uh his attention to detail is amazing and his um just how clean everything he makes is is really really cool but anyway um i i played with his sons in the first version of chalk dinosaur uh which was around from 2008 to 2010. And um, how did I even get on this topic? Um, oh, yeah, the slide guitar. Yeah, he gave me a slide guitar, a Hawaiian lap steel. That's what they call it. The, and um, that was like the centerpiece of Crystal Coast. And for this new beach-inspired album called Fire on the Beach... This one, this one's got a different flavor too. And it's, um, a lot of it is centered around the ukulele because I was gifted a ukulele from my girlfriend, Alyssa, who also gave me a steel drum. And so those two instruments were kind of like a foundational tone to kind of build on for some of the songs. And then a couple of the songs were ideas that I didn't put on the first, or that I didn't put on Crystal Coast. And um, a lot of the album was also inspired by gear that the Bradfords let me borrow. The Bradfords, uh, who were members of the original band and their dad, you know, gave me that lap steel. He let me borrow a Stratocaster, which is like the quintessential surf guitar. And um, so a lot of the songs feature a Stratocaster sound, which is different. I've never uh, had one of those on an album. And they've got a pretty distinct kind of tone. And this one had a whammy bar on it, which a whammy bar is like a lever that you can wiggle and it modulates the pitch so you get this vibrato sound and you can hear that in a lot of the songs in the album but the tone of that guitar really kind of led 
a lot of the create creative choices I made for this album, steel drum, ukulele, and then um, Rich Bradford, the son of Mr. Bradford, the former drummer of Chalk Dinosaur from 2008 to 2010, uh, he lent me a bunch of his studio gear so he lent me this vintage rca ribbon microphone it looks like something you would see on like a 50s or 60s tv talk show like it's a big gigantic metal rectangle um and it sounds like you would expect, like it sounds like it came straight out of 1950 or 60 or something. And um, so that had a really cool tone. And then he lent me this modern microphone. Uh, it's from a brand called Mike Tech. It's a condenser microphone, which is, you know, the very sensitive, crispy, um, bright sounding microphone, very detailed. And um, I used that to record some things. And um, he also lent me his rack of outboard gear. So um, he had three really nice microphone preamps, which are very kind of influential in how your microphones sound. Um, and he had these two vintage compressors called LA4s made by a company called Universal Audio. It's kind of like the LA4 was not a super popular model, but um I think it's kind of like an under the radar, you know, it's got some it's got something to it. It's got an interesting sound, very smooth. And he let me borrow those and he let me borrow his Chandler Limited Red Devil compressors which are super nice. I'm not exactly sure like what the history or what the, um, you know, like what their claim to fame is, but they sounded great. And, um, I'll explain after each of these songs, you know, like what, what these, how these all kind of fit into the, uh, the sound. But anyway, the combination of all these instruments I was gifted and gear I was lent, um, I wanted to make something different with, with all this stuff and you know it had been a while since I explored the beach coastal surfy vibes which I really like and um, that's how this album kind of came together so what I want to do is just listen to the songs um, hasn't been released yet but as a listener of this podcast you get a special first listen to this album and then i'll uh, say a few words about about the writing of the song or the recording of the song anything that seems like it could possibly be interesting um so here we go the first track on the album is the title track it's called fire on the beach let's roll the song action Thank you. 
Thank you. 
Decided to go with the classic fade out for this song. I don't know if I've ever done a fade out in any song before this, but I don't know. Whenever I listen to old music, I just notice that like every song just fades out. Like nobody wrote an ending back then. So I figured, what the heck? Why don't I do that? This seems like a good one to just fade out and into an infinitely looping expanse in your brain. But, um, yeah, this song, I believe this song started out with, I wanted to test out that RCA vintage ribbon microphone, which was the giant metal rectangle, uh, looks like, you know, Johnny Carson would be talking into it. Um, I wanted to try that out, so I set that up and I plugged it into one of rich's preamps that he uh lent me which i believe was a phoenix audio something i I can't remember and then i ran that into the chandler limited compressor um i couldn't tell you what the settings are were on that but so i ran it through that um and then i played the ukulele in front of it and um, I think I just recorded that ukulele loop that kind of plays throughout the what you would call the chorus of the song where um, where the vocals are. And um, just played that riff and made a loop out of it. And then I, I, I plugged the bass in, same chain. I mean, I, I was going direct, though. I wasn't using a microphone to record the bass. I just plugged the bass guitar directly into the preamp into the Chandler Limited compressor and um, started messing around with bass lines and I found that, you know, that particular chord progression, you know, sounded cool with the whatever bass notes I was playing and um, had a kind of nice bounce to it. So I added that to the loop, and I, I I don't really know what else there is more like to that main section. It's mostly just ukulele, and bass and drums. So 
something I was trying with the bass guitar, which I really haven't done in any other um, recording yet. Surprisingly, somehow I don't know. I don't know how, but I I turned the tone knob all the way down. So the tone knob is like an equalizer in your bass. So, you know, you can control how much treble you have in your signal. So I turned that all the way down. So it was just the low frequencies getting through. There was no string noise or like metallic sliding or when you would slide your hand on the strings. It, It was only just picking up like this very low thumpy sound. And I... I used the bridge pickup, which there's two pickups, and I was using a jazz bass, which is a model of bass from Fender. It's got two pickups. There's one near the bridge of the instrument, and there's one near the neck, and they both sound very different. Most of the time when I record bass, um, so there's a volume control for the neck pickup, there's a volume control for the treble pickup, and then there's a tone knob, which controls how much you know, treble you have in your signal. It filters out the high frequencies, you know, the more you turn it down. So usually when I record bass, I've got both volumes for the neck pickup and the bridge pickup. I've got them both turned up all the way and I've got the tone knob turned up all the way. So it's just, everything's all the way up. That's usually how I do it. But for this one, I turned the neck pickup all the way down I only used the bridge pickup, which has a much more kind of biting, um, there's less bass in the sound, but there's more definition. Uh, so I used that pickup and I turned, that pickup is usually brighter too, like it's more trebly. So it was an interesting sound. I turned the the tone control all the way down, so it was... It filtered out all the high frequencies, and it was just the bridge pickup. And so that gave an interesting tone. And then another element to the bass tone was where I was plucking the strings. So the closer you pluck towards the bridge, the more kind of sharp the sound gets, the more it gets more... um, Mm, there's less bass in the signal and it there's more definition just in the same way that the bridge pickup has those qualities the closer you play to the bridge the more bite it has but the less kind of subby low frequencies like rumbly frequencies it has so i had never really explored that combination of tone like the complete opposite tone would be if you would pluck the strings near the bridge or I mean near the neck pluck the strings near the neck and then use the neck pickup that would be a really kind of warm kind of mushy bass sound which definitely has uses but for this song I was using the opposite I was all the bite and definition not quite as much low frequency information coming out of the bass so that was that was new for me, and I really liked and still do like the bass tone that that provides. And I was running the bass guitar direct into one of Rich's preamps. I think it was also, I think I also did it through the Phoenix, 
the Phoenix Audio something. Um, and that was different because, um, you know, I've, for the past over 10 years, I've been using the same microphone preamp, a PreSonus ADL 600. It's a tube microphone preamp. Um, my parents helped me buy it when I was, uh, I was 22 years old, 20, no, when I was 20, 20 or 21 years old, they helped me buy this. It was kind of like my first step into kind of pro audio gear. Uh, I just, everything I had learned has kind of, had kind of pointed me to like, you need to have a good preamp if you want to get professional sound. So I've been using that ever since then. And, um, so this getting a bar of riches gear was nice because I got to try out different preamps and see what those did to the sound. And, um, so this Phoenix audio preamp, which is what I was running the bass through, uh, it, it sounded very different than mine. And, um, it wasn't a tube preamp. So I think it had tubes tend to kind of saturate in a way and kind of like fuzz things up a little bit, almost in an imperceivable, imperceivable way sometimes. But, um, I think this one, I got a lot more kind of definition, which, you know, everything I've been saying about the bass has been about definition and bite, but this preamp just had so much clarity and, uh, definition. And, uh, that preamp was running into the little devil compressor, which I also borrowed from rich. That's what the ukulele was going through. That's pretty much what everything in this song went through the Phoenix preamp into the little devil. And the neat thing about that compressor was I was kind of slamming it like the, um, the amount of gain reduction it was doing. Like it was usually when you do that with the compressor plug-in, like on your computer, like a simulation, it starts to sound just weird and unnatural. But with this, uh, Chandler little devil, you know, I was pushing the processor very hard and it, it sounded great. It never sounded unnatural to me or anything. It just sounded, everything sounded very present and punchy, which is very nice. So I was super happy with that bass tone and the ukulele tone. And then for the drums, like I'm real happy, real happy with the way I was able to like get the drums to sound in this song. That's like one of my, one of the, you know, things I'm most proud about in this song is the drum tones. They sound to me like very punchy, almost electronic, but it is an acoustic drum set that I played in the basement of my house. And, um, so I recorded the drums when I also had all this gear I was borrowing. So, um, that, that probably helped. Um, I think I ran the drum overhead microphones through the LA fours. 
I ran the kick and the snare through the little devils. And then I don't, I don't know what else I did, but you know, so that was, that was a, the capture was good. It sounded good already. And then I think I really got in to the nitty gritty with the mixing of the drums and just doing everything I could to make sure they were as clean and punchy and tight as possible, which is a fun thing to do. I enjoy doing that. And I mean, I enjoy doing it when it works. And in this song, it was working and I felt like, ah, I really like that, those drum tones. So I think like something I've been figuring out recently is that when I scoop certain frequency bands, it kind of gives the modern type of sound that I wanted to have, like the punchy, clear tone that I wanted. So like when I cut, cut out the frequencies around 500 Hertz out of the snare drum, out of toms, out of kick, out of the whole drum group, that kind of was a light bulb for me when I realized like what that did to the sound. It, it makes it sound, I don't know how to, it just like makes it sound more polished and clear. Um, and it's possible I might be overdoing that right now because I just figured it out and I'm excited about it. So now I'm scooping everything at 500 Hertz, 400 Hertz, but that, that made a big difference. Um, and I, I remember I started to kind of figure that out when I was mixing the song Synchronicity off of the album Sprout because in the initial demo, like I was using a drum sample. It was like from a vinyl. It was like a vinyl drum sample. And then when we had the the drums that we recorded, I was I liked the aesthetic of those original demo drums, but um, we didn't want to use them because we we wanted to record Nick playing. So I was trying to get Nick's drums to sound, have the same kind of sonic aesthetic. And so I kind of analyzed that sound a bit and looked at the EQ curve and everything. And I noticed that there was a lot of, there was hardly any frequency information around 500 Hertz or 600 Hertz between four and 600 Hertz, you know, there was a big dip. So I tried it with, with the drums that we had recorded and it, it really changed the way the drums sounded. Um, so that was kind of the first time I kind of noticed like, wow, you can really change the sound of the drums if you scoop out this frequency area. And then, um, I did that again because I was I was listening to the uh, drums that were done drums from an artist whose productions I like, which is Volfpack. Um, they released some of their like isolated drum tracks. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why, but I I downloaded some of them and I was listening to them and kind of analyzing them to see. Because they sound, I really like the way they sound, and I wanted to see, you know, what is going on that makes them sound like this. And it was the same thing. There was a huge scoop, you know, in those mid-range frequencies. So 
I don't know, like since then, um, you know, I've been messing around more and more and kind of just finding that I prefer the sound of the drum when there's less of those 400 to 800 hertz frequencies in there. So that was kind of an aha moment. Um, and another thing was just making the drums real short. Like that snare drum is real short. There's, there's not much of a tail on it. And that really does something powerful to the sound whenever the drum doesn't have a long sustained tail. And even if you think that the drum sound doesn't have a long ringing sustain, it usually does. Um, and if you cut it, if you trim it, it'll really change the way the drums sound. And, you know, it's not always what you want. Sometimes you want a big open sounding drum, but for a song like this and for a lot of the types of music that I make, which is like very like tight, rhythmic, funky stuff, short is, has been really, really good for that. And I'm, I'm continuing to learn like shortening the drum sounds uh really helps the tightness of the recording so the song is kind of like th this song fire on the beach is kind of in two parts at least from a production standpoint there's there's the initial part and the part with the vocals where it's real tight um and I treated the drums a certain way with that section. And then once the vocals end, and there's there's this point where it kind of breaks into a different feel, and then it goes into a bunch of like instrumental guitar solo stuff, and the drums start kind of opening up more. So for that section, I treated the drums more just like more naturally. Um, and then for, so I, I didn't shorten the drum sounds. I, I'm not exactly, I like treated them. I tried to make them more natural sounding. And then like in the parts with the vocals where everything's real tight, I, you know, did more processing and like trimming and just making that as kind of tight as possible. And okay. So the vocals, um, I recorded those with Rich Bradford. He had lent me this Mic Tech microphone, which is a tube microphone, which I had never tried one of those before. Really high-end microphone. I mean, from my perspective, um, the most expensive mic I own is like 600 bucks, but this one was in, you know, another level up from that. And... It definitely, it definitely like felt like it because I recorded the vocals with this microphone and usually when I record vocals, I, I'll do, I'll triple it. So I'll do one, one take, have that pan down the middle and then I'll do two more that I'll, that'll spread out to the left and right channels and, um, I really didn't have to EQ the vocals at all. I just compressed them a little bit. But usually when I record vocals, you know, you've got to 
change the EQ of the vocals so they so they're present enough, so they're not harsh, so they're not boomy or muddy. And with this microphone, it was like I didn't need to hardly do anything to them. They just sat perfectly, you know, raw, which was very cool. And um, I think for harmonies and for additional like double layers, for additional layers, I I experimented with recording those through the RCA, that vintage ribbon microphone, just to see how they would blend because they have very different sonic uh, characteristics. You know, the the mic tech microphone, which is what I use to record like the main vocal sound, that's very bright, very present, very detailed. And the RCA microphone, the vintage microphone, um, that's very dark and it's very like not detailed. Um, it's kind of got a lot more weight in the mid-range frequencies. Um, so I was curious what those would sound like together. And that's what you have with the vocal sound for this song. And lyrically, Fire on the Beach is, it was inspired, uh, and it was inspired by a memory, a fond memory I have of last, uh, December, November, December of 2020. Um, I was in, I was living in Long Beach, California, um, because my girlfriend, Alyssa, she, she took a travel nursing contract in Long Beach and asked if I wanted to go. And I did. Um, so we were living out there and we took a little trip. Huntington Beach is about 20 minutes north or 20 minutes south. Um, so we took a little trip there uh, one evening and I had heard that they had fire pits on the beach that you could just use and make fires on the beach, which seems very, that just doesn't seem common, like in any East coast beaches. So I was super excited about that because I love to make fires and I love the beach. And so we went to Huntington beach and we had a fire. We brought some drinks out there and had a speaker. So we were playing music and it was like so many of my favorite things just all in one place. Um, so that was a really great memory. And um, Huntington Beach, it was cool. There was just a bunch of public fire pits that were just there at the beach. And you could just use, use them if you want them. That um, was so cool. And, um, you know, this was also, this was my first time living with Alyssa. So, um, whoa, my Bluetooth speaker keeps talking to me. Um, and, you know, we were continuing to fall in love more and it was, uh, you know, just a lot of really good feelings that inspired this piece of music and, 
I'm very happy that I, I feel like that came through in the way it sounds and the feelings I get when I hear the song, um, especially the the guitar solo section is one of my favorite, I think, that I've ever done just with the, it's a very euphoric um, emotion, which I love, you know, that's my favorite kind of music is music that is euphoric and makes me feel like that. So I was very happy about that. The guitar I recorded, I don't think I had the Stratocaster at this point. So I think I was using my normal guitar, which is the Gibson ES335, which if you don't know what that is, just imagine a Chuck Berry uh, it's got those, it's a hollow body, it's got those F-holes, imagine Marty McFly uh, playing uh, Johnny Be Good in Back to the Future, and uh, that's it. Imagine B.B. King plucking his guitar, Lucille, you know, that's that's it. So, I was playing that guitar, and usually I plug my guitar into the twin reverb, which is my guitar amp, and then I put a microphone on the amp. But for this song, I was testing out what it sounded like without an amplifier, just plugging my guitar directly into the, the microphone preamp that Rich had lent me. The same one that I recorded the bass through. So I recorded the guitar direct through the same chain that I recorded the bass on. So there's no guitar amplifier involved just went directly into the microphone preamp and then into that little devil compressor. And uh, I was really blown away with the tone. It was it was a lot better than what it usually sounds like when I just plug my guitar directly in to the computer. Um, just a lot of clarity, no harshness, and a lot of uh, punch. It was... I was just loving the tone of the uh, the direct bass and guitar through this chain. There's a little steel, steel drum in there. It's real sneaky. Um, it 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 doubles that melody like. You probably you might not even hear it, even if you know that it's there and you're listening for it. It it comes in. Um, I think whenever, right after the vocals end, um, I think that's when it comes in. But um, yeah, this song was the also the only song that involved a synthesizer. It's the only synthesizer in the the whole song. It's during that part when um, I don't know. There's like a part where like the chord changes to a minor chord, uh, and it, the the song sounds a little darker for a little bit, and uh, right before. It's during the section where there's two bass guitars playing at the same time, which that, no, that wasn't a first. I I did that in the song called True Care off of the album Word of the Soul. But yeah, two basses. I, I like the sound of the bass. But anyway, um, I think that's, that's probably way too much information on that song. Um... So let's uh, 
let's wrap that up and let's uh let's listen to the next one this song's called don't you gimme no featuring bootleg kenny and guitar zach you gimme no featuring bootleg kenny and guitar zach guitar zach is uh, a guy named zach wiesinger he's a musician uh from pittsburgh um he's one of the most talented and unique guitar players i've ever seen anywhere um his style is is so unique and his command over his instrument and his connection with it is I've 
feel like I've never seen anything like it. Um, he plays with his fingers. He, his compositions are just very, very unique. And um, so he's somebody that I've I've known for a long time because his family is friends with my best friend Steve with their family. So I've been seeing him since I was, you know, 10 years old. Um, didn't really start, uh, doing anything musically with him until about 2010. Uh, that's when I first started, you know, jamming with him some and, um, just like recording. And ever since then here and there, you know, we'll get together and jam or record. Um, I've played some shows with him on drums and he's sat in at one of our shows, a chalk dinosaur show last year, actually Uh, we played a show together with his band, which is called misaligned mind. So, um, and bootleg Kenny, that's his dad, Kenny Wiesinger. And so sometimes they'll they'll record a voice memo on their iPhone and they'll send it to me. They'll send me some real weird, wacky voice memo. And um, I had done this before. Like one time they sent me one and I brought the voice memo recording into my computer, like into my recording software. And I kind of like built, I like used that and cut it up and like made recorded instrumentals around it and made it into this piece of music. And, um, I think that one was called poison berries and that one's real weird. Um, I also really like that one, but, um, there's a very long segment at the beginning of just like, like throat clearing that is a little much now that I listen to it again, (laughs) but this one, this was another one of those things. So they sent me a voice memo and from that voice memo, I kind of chopped it up. Uh, rearranged it a bit, added instrumentals, and made it into uh, the song that you just heard. And um, that was a super fun process, and it resulted in this really wacky piece of music that I never would have come up with by myself. Um, And uh, let me just play for you the original voice memo. So here's here's what Zach sent me. Um, <laughs> that, that, that like started the whole song. And action. This is Bootleg Kenny describing his new uh, concept for a, a studio release that we want to do here at Nosh Studios. Here we go. Don't you give me no. Ah, ah. Don't you give me no. Ah, ah. Don't you give me no. Ah, ah. Don't you give me yo. Ah, ah. Don't you give me no. Ah, ah. Don't you give me no. Ah, ah. Don't you give me no, ah, ah. Don't you give me no, no, ah, ah. Repeat until you chunk. Don't you give me no, ah, ah. Don't you give me no, ah, ah. Don't you give me no, ah, ah. Repeat until you chunk. So that's what they sent me. Um, (laughs) Which is very open-ended. And uh, so then I... For some reason, I went to the ukulele and started 
that's kind of what laid the foundation for like the instrumentals as I was, I was playing like some wacky chord progression on the ukulele and um the drums that's like a cut up drum break from like a old vinyl record um and there there's a part that I I did something I learned something new that I really liked the way it sounded in there there's this ukulele solo and the tone of it is like electric it sounds kind of like fuzzed out a little bit so what I did was I recorded ukulele solo with a microphone and a ukulele and it sounded normal like a normal ukulele and then I took that recorded solo and I ran that audio through my guitar amp and I, you know, cranked it up and it sounded kind of, it sounded like electric, but because the ukulele has those nylon strings, there's no piercing frequencies. There's no like offensive frequencies when it, even when it's, you know, overdriven and distorted, it's still like warm and round and uh, pleasing to the ear. So that was really cool because you can't really do that if you're if you set a microphone up in front of a ukulele and then you plug the microphone into a guitar amp and you crank the guitar amp you're going to get a lot of feedback and like it gets out of control real easy but um since I had already recorded the solo and then I was running it out of my computer into the guitar amp there was no feedback loop so that was a cool tone that I had never done before. So that was really cool. And then I also had a lot of fun. Okay, so the voice memo, it sounds... I feel like voice memos on an iPhone or a phone, they've got a specific sound to them. And it's not necessarily like a pleasing sound. It's like very bright, very digital and compressed sounding. So I wanted to kind of try to make it more organic sounding somehow more analog sounding um partially because like i know zach wiesinger his aesthetic his sonic aesthetic is just analog to the max just like tubes and warm incandescent lighting and just um vintage everything like so i kind of wanted to try to you know, go in that direction with the sound. So the first step with that vocal track was to try to do something to kind of make it sound more analog or vintage or something. So I ran that through my guitar amp, the voice memo, um, which gives it like, it just gives it kind of a, more of a character than just directly from the phone microphone, like running running anything through a guitar amplifier into a room and then capturing the sound of that recording going through the amp and then into the room, capturing like the room as well. That'll definitely make anything that's digital sound a little more organic. So that was one of the treatments. And then also I, exper I experimented with running. So I cut the vocal up and like made it in time to a beat. And 
And then I ran that edited vocal out of my computer into my guitar delay pedal, like my echo pedal. And that's got a very kind of warm, dark echo character. And that was fun because I could, as the recording was playing, I could twist the knobs of the delay pedal adjusting like the echo time and stuff and it it made all these weird kind of swooping pitch effects whenever you similar to yeah if you were to speed up or slow down a a cassette like it this the pitch changes um so there's a lot of like pitch delay sounding effects like like pitch modulations um and that was from that was from that running audio through my echo pedal and twisting the knobs in real time and recording that result back into my computer. I also did that with the drum loop, which was, that was that I hadn't really tried that before, but it just gives a lot of extra mojo to the sound and you can being able to manipulate the effects as it's recording just creates very unique sounds and moments that like if I was trying to do that with a mouse in my computer like clicking around it I, it would just never happen like it's the kind of effect that only happens if you know you have physical object in your hands that you're manipulating with both of your hands at the same time um which you can't really do in the computer cuz you you have one point of clicking so you can only control one thing at a time so yeah, reamping, that's what it's called. Whenever you run an audio signal through something else. You know, like something that you've already recorded, when you run that through another piece of equipment, that's called reamping. So I did that with the drums and I did that with the vocals. And um yeah, I reamped it through my guitar amp, through um my guitar effects, you know, the delay, the echo and uh reverb i think i was in real time manipulating the reverb of my guitar amp to kind of like accentuate certain words or whatever there's just i was doing a lot of stuff that i never do with this song and it's definitely because of what zach and his dad sent me like it 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 like um stimulated some kind of creative uh path in my brain that I was just trying all this stuff that I never try because just like Zach and his dad they're they're so uh they're so out there that like it made me go more in that direction with my production and I was super um like happy and satisfied with how this piece of music came out um and it wasn't like too weird that it wasn't listenable it was like just weird enough for me and um i you know this was probably last year that i finished this recording and um you know i really liked it and i wanted to share it um you know a year went by it didn't seem like we were going to really like there was any other plan for this piece of music and since it was very ukulele based when i whenever i was putting this fire on the beach album together i thought 
well, this would be, this would be perfect for this. Um, so I reached out to Zach and asked him like, you know, is it okay if I release this song that we made together and, you know, I'll list you and your dad as, you know, featured, featured, uh, artists on it. And, uh, yeah, they were pumped. Um, and I'm very excited that this will be out there, you know, for forever. Well, no, not forever because someday all digital data will be destroyed all humans will be extinct. There will be no more music of mine existing. But, um, I mean, until, until it, you know, for my lifetime, it'll be around. Um, yeah. So, uh, let's get on to the next one. Um, this next one's called Alamitos Beach. And Alamitos Beach was when I lived in Long Beach with my girlfriend Alyssa, we lived two blocks away from the ocean. And the beach that was, you know, the closest beach to us was called Alamitos Beach. So here it is. Thank you. 
there it was, Alamitos Beach. So this song was really, really all centered around the steel drum. Um, that's how I started this. I, you know, set up the steel drum, wanted to make a song with it. So I started to play patterns on the steel drum. And then I found a couple patterns I liked, made loops out of those. One of them was, you know, that first one. There's like a couple different sections of the song where you can hear the steel drum pattern change. And I just built everything around that. Um, so it was a little unexpected, like when I picked up the bass and started playing to the drum loops that it, you know, just went in a lot of different places, like the first... And la you know the first section, the same section that the song ends with, you know, it's very like funky sounding, and um, probably influenced by Volpeck and Corey Wong, and and that lead guitar part, the first part, the that was definitely George Benson influenced because. Uh, kind of you know one of those one of those uh little note sequences is definitely something i heard from him Boo -doo 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 -doo. Uh, i don't know um but yeah and then but then it it goes away from that uh funky sound and it goes into kind of a more i don't even know what you would call it like a islandy sound where that flute comes in uh, the flute, which is the South American Kenna flute. Wooden. Uh, I learned about that from my cousin Bobby, who got real into indigenous flutes. Um, and I got one, and I use it. I've used it on a few recordings, um, interlinked off of... What is that? Star Blazer. Um, I also used it on the Chalk Reads, which was off of the album Chalk Dinosaur and Friends from 2016. I feel like I've used it in other recordings too. I use it whenever, I don't know, I, I feel like every time I play flute on a recording, it's just got such a nice tone. It almost always adds something interesting and pleasant to the sound that I really like. And then uh, it goes into like a kind of a hard rock section for most of the rest of the song. Where, yeah, it's pretty classic rock sounding. Um, and uh, you can definitely hear in this song... This is where, this was a song I recorded with the Stratocaster that was lent to me by Mr. Bradford. And you can tell, uh, well, the tone is very different, but also it's got that whammy bar, so there's a lot of like vibrato sounding pitch modulation. I'm probably overdoing it with it, but you know, any sustained note, I'm like wiggling that note with the whammy bar because I just love that sound and I love that extra level extra like layer dimension of expression that you get with it so i was doing that um i was also playing through an amp that mr bradford made and he let me borrow he he like cloned this old 
Silvertone amp. It, it was like an old cheap student amp, but it sounded real crunchy and cool. And he, you know, made one of his own. Um, and he let me borrow it. And um, so that's what I was playing a Stratocaster through this cranked up Silvertone. I think I had a, an extra tube screamer uh, overdrive pedal in front of the amp to kind of give it a, more juice. But yeah, I was, um, I had a lot of fun playing the guitar to this song, just like the hard rocking, jolly, happy, but heavy guitar. I really enjoy playing that. And, um, yeah, the guitar solo sections in this one, I really enjoyed and, um, I like the way they turned out. I've got to say, though, this song was the biggest headache of all of them because I just had such a hard time with this particular song balancing it. Um, it was like I couldn't get the bass. I couldn't get the bass right because I, I kept it either didn't have enough bass or it had too much bass and it was, it sounded muddy and I couldn't hear what the bass was doing. I still didn't really like, it's not as good as I want it to be, but it's like, I had just spent enough time on it that like, it was counterproductive and it was just like, I'm going to finish this and this is the best, this is the best I can do with this particular composition right now. And you know, I want to move on. So that's what I did. I got to a, a place that I could live with and um, I moved on. But uh, this was actually one of the few songs where I got... Okay, so I had the steel drum loops and I think I had some of the guitar parts in place and then I was recording drums and it was just somehow I lost my way and it just wasn't sounding good at all to me. I got to a point where it just like wasn't sound, everything was sounding wrong. Um, so it was one of the few times where I kind of just start from scratch. I, I didn't start completely from scratch. Like I, I kept the drums that I recorded, but like all of my mixing, you know, all of the equalization and compression and all the effects I had put on the drums, just everything I'd done to shape the sound, I just kind of brought everything into a new project and just removed all of that stuff and kind of felt like I needed to start from the beginning again with balancing all the sounds and processing them. So that, w that was different, and I'm glad I did because I was, I was almost at the point of abandoning the project um, and I didn't, which I'm happy about because I, I like the song, but yes. And that was it. I, I also had a hard time, like getting the guitars, like in the hard rocking section, like the second half of the song, getting the guitars to be not harsh, but present enough. That was difficult. And I think probably a big part of that was because I had a hard time getting the bass right, because, you know, if the bass, the prominence and the sound of the bass guitar 
and just that whole low end of the song really has an effect on how you hear the higher shriller sounds like if there's not enough bottom end you know the top end could sound harsh but if there's too much bottom end it could sound dull and like um yeah it was i was driving myself nuts uh towards the end just like trying to get this thing right but um you know i did my best and i'm i'm happy enough with with the way the mix turned out but yeah this one was definitely the the hardest for me to get to a place that i could live with i think um yeah i don't know i i don't i honestly don't know what was different about this one because i recorded it with all the same stuff that i did fire on the beach with um well i was recording amps so yeah i don't know something about it every project is different and that's why i feel like it's important to just do the best you can and move on because every project is different um some mixes and some recordings just fit together more easily than others and um if you spend too much time trying to make one just working on the same one uh you know it gets frustrating and if you just spend all your time working on one thing you know you'll you'll never make it to the the ideas that are waiting for you that are that just come together real nicely and easily um so i figured it's, uh, i need to practice what i preach and just you know do the best i can and and finish it and that's what i did and um we'll see when i listen to it whenever i listen to these albums you know later like you know years later i feel like it's a different perspective and i can kind of hear them in a different way and most of the time the things that are driving me nuts about a recording really i don't even remember like what they are um years later like as long as it's nothing extremely offensive um it's probably not going to matter that much to me you know it gets the emotion across which is the important part and um yeah so that's that's that one i don't think there's any more to add about that let's go on to the next one here this uh this next one's called bixby park bixby park was is another long beach reference when i was living in long beach there was this park a couple blocks away from our house it's called bixby park it's just a big grass field it's kind of near near this bluff that overlooked the ocean and um yeah here it is bixby park
there it is, Bixby Park. So this was a song that came together in one session, which is, I love when that happens. And it's just so nice when that happens and it feels great. And I, you know, those are the types of things that keep you coming back for more like recording, writing sessions. Um, it's more minimal. Um, it was one of the f- first tracks that I, first like recording sessions where I, I wanted to test out the Stratocaster that Mr. Bradford had lent me. So I, I just uh, opened up a project and started playing with the Stratocaster guitar and you know, played a rhythm guitar part and then played a lead guitar part and kind of made the decision early on that I wasn't going, this wasn't going to be the type of song where I was getting microscopic with every detail, um, which is the way Fire on the Beach was. I got microscopic with everything. This one was more just a feel type of piece. Uh, I was just trying to emote through the the guitar. And I feel like it's some of my more emotional guitar playing. But, um, yeah, it came together in, in one session. And there were several more sessions of, like, mixing and trying to get the overall recording to sound the way I wanted. Um... But all of the composition happened in one one session, which was... I love it when that happens. But, um, yeah, I try to keep it minimal. Um, I tune the guitar a little lower. Um, and I like the way that initial groove comes in. I, I was experimenting with putting saturation on the whole mix... Um, saturation, like distortion, um, like what happens when you record too loud or like a little too loud into a cassette or, um, into like a tube preamp or something, it starts to like saturate and get a little overdriven. But there's a certain point where, you know, you, it's not really perceivable, perceptible perceivable it like you you don't really hear it that much but it it is happening and it's making the sound richer that's kind of what saturation does and this past year i feel like i've been really exploring what saturation can do for mixing and and how important it is in making your recording sound fuller and just more present but it's a it's a balancing game because if you go too far it um you know it can be distracting or it can take away from the sound and actually just listening back to that right now i feel like i might have gone a little too far with it because there are certain parts where like a guitar note will hit and i'm listening at a quiet volume right now so like for some reason, like, when you listen at a quiet volume, like, I can hear the mix, like, distorting a little bit. 
Um, but if you're blasting it, like, no, you don't hear it. But, um, yeah, it might have gone a little too far, but, you know, you live and you learn, you know? It's a snapshot in time of my recording, composition, mixing skills. It's just, uh, you know, it's a snapshot in time. A lot of the favorite recordings uh, of of the world, you know, a lot of saturation happening, and you don't even know it. But um, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I was just jamming on the Stratocaster, working that whammy bar, getting that pitch modulation, um, that that warbly wobbly sound. You know, I might have overdone it on that, too. I don't know. Uh, I'll have to wait a little bit till I have a little more distance from this album and listen again. But, you know, I uh, I like this song for what it is, and I like it for, uh, I like the album for, for what it is. I feel like I'm... I'm trying a lot of different things with mixing and um, arrangement, and I'm not sure yet. We'll see what happens. Uh, I feel like <laughs> it's either going to like take my production quality forward uh, once I sort out how to like use all of these kind of new techniques and things that I've been exploring, or... Here's my estimate or my prediction. It kind of happened. It's kind of predictable because it happens anytime I learn something new or anytime I get a new effect. Uh, first, I overdo it. I don't think I'm overdoing it, but then whenever I listen later, I'm, I overdo it. And then I pull it back and I kind of learn how to use it in a more... Uh, tasteful or like subtle way but at first you know your ears have to your ears at first when you hear a new effect like they're not used to it like it sounds novel and so you want to hear that effect and you use too much of it and then um, as your ears get a little sharper and more used to what is actually happening to the sound then you know, you can pull it back to a more, I don't know, to a more subtle level that, that accomplishes what you're trying to do without, you know, like hitting people over the head with it. So like that, that just happens with everything. You know, anytime I get a new effect, it's, that's how you learn how to use it. You know, you got to overdo it and then, and then you pull it back and uh, then you can get back to your normal baseline perspective and kind of inject these techniques or effects in a, you know, more, more, uh, what's the word? You can use these in a more kind of calculated way, I guess. But until your ears develop to the point where you can hear more subtle changes, it's usually you're overdoing it. So what I've found, and I'm okay with that. That's just, uh, you can probably hear that in some certain element of every album that I make where I learn something new and then I'm like, 
doing that a whole ton. Um, but anyway, that's about it. Let's uh, let's go on to the uh, the next song, which um, next song here. This song is called Shoreline Village, and Shoreline Village was, it's another Long Beach reference. It's uh, when I lived in Long Beach, down at the beach, Alamitos Beach, uh, the closest beach to our house where I lived, two blocks away, there was like a kind of like a boardwalk shopping area called Shoreline Village, and it was a place where I would run around in the morning, uh, like jogging, uh, with my girlfriend, Alyssa, we'd go run around there and yeah, I went out to eat there a couple times, just kind of like hung out there some, it wasn't like an amazing village plaza, but you know, I have a lot of fond memories just of that general area. So this one's called Shoreline Village. <laughs> Thank you. 
There it is, Shoreline Village with the weird ending. I feel like my favorite part of that song might be the last sixth of the song, the funky part. But um, yeah, this was a uh, this was another song that came together. Uh, I guess it, pretty quick, but um, this this one the process was. A little different for this one i recorded drums before anything um and i just recorded eight bar sections of different beats so i did eight bars with the hi-hat and i did eight bars of another beat with the ride cymbal i did you know like a couple different variations of drum beats and then so then i had these little different sections that i could copy and paste or move around and i kind of made um had the drums first and then I then I was playing around on that Stratocaster and this one kind of had more of a I guess it's not really traditional surf sound but it's a little bit more in that direction so I was messing with that it's kind of I feel like this song was all kind of driven by the tone of the Stratocaster through that amplifier that Mr. Bradford gave me or lent me the uh, silver tone one and um that's pretty much it i was jamming on the guitar and came up with some different sections um i feel like i tried some different techniques with the mixing on this one that i i tried one technique that i've never i never ever do but i always hear about and that's called top down mixing well, top-down mixing, but, um, well, the idea, um, I don't know if it's exactly that, but the idea is that uh, I hear a lot about this technique in mixing where, okay, so you have your recording, and you can uh, put effects on the master output, which is, you know, all of the tracks combined. You can put effects on that, so it affects the combined sound of everything mixed together. Um, and usually when I mix, I don't have anything on the master channel. I'm just mixing, trying to get it to sound the way I want it to sound without anything on the master channel. And then once I have the mix done, then I go to the master channel and I add a little equalization or compression to the master channel. But this technique that... I've been hearing about uh, that I, I guess a lot of mix engineers do is they put like if they know they're going to have a compressor and an EQ on the master channel and like a tape emulation or whatever they're going to have on the master channel they put that on from the very beginning when they start mixing and they mix into those effects so they're hearing like how those are affecting the mix like as you're going in apparently it kind of changes the way all the channels interact and the way that like the way that you mix so i tried it with this one um and i put a compressor which is a very common mixing tool uh that is pretty much always ends up on the master channel for me but like usually it's after i've done the mix 
So this one, I put that and an EQ on before I started mixing and tried it that way. And, um, I don't real. I, the result was like inconclusive. Like the mix sounds, it sounded good, but different, but like maybe a little bloated. I don't know. Like it was, um, it was different. I can't say I'm sold on that technique. At least, you know, it's probably something that probably need to do a few more times to get a feel for it, but uh, it was worth a try. And, um, yeah, I tried to, I tried to play some violin on this song, um, during like the, I don't know what you would call it, the B section. It's like a more emotional section where the chords are moving and there's like some string orchestral type of sounds going on. And I have a violin and I used to play violin. So I was like, I spent an afternoon layering violin, this melody, um, trying to get it to sound like like an orchestra, you know, like a bunch of strings playing together. But for some reason, it just like doesn't, it doesn't sound like that whenever I record myself playing 20 times and putting them all together. It doesn't sound the same as when there's 20 people in a room playing. And that's a little, also, I'm like very not, I'm very rusty, so... Uh, <laughs> it's not the best quality, uh, playing, but I guess I, when I was doing it, I was thinking about when I played in the high school, high school orchestra, I remembered like, I could hear kids next to me, they were playing out of tune, out of time, but then if you stand back from the orchestra, it all sounds like a pretty cohesive tone, so I was like, well, maybe that'll happen. And like, you know, if I record enough times, it'll kind of uh, cover all of the imperfections and kind of make it into a gelatinous, singular string sound. And it kind of worked, but it also kind of just sounded like a kid's orchestra playing out of tune. Um, so, I mean, it's still in there, but it's like buried beneath other things. And... um I don't even know if you can even hear it anymore. It's so low. The melody, yeah, I, I think I just covered it up with, like, software, like, computer string simulations. But anyway, uh, yeah, Shoreline Village. That was it. The ending. Why did I do that? Uh, just to, like, you know, surprise the listener. It, like, the song ends and then it comes back in three beats later. Not a full bar. It's a, it's a surprise. Yes. I don't know. I must have been must have been spending too much time in the basement. But um anyway, yeah, I like that one. My friend told me it reminded him of like a Japanese detective show or something. I could hear that. But um, yeah, let's go on to the last two songs in the album. Uh, this first one's called Ballast Point. Ballast Point. 
Ballast Point. Why is it called Ballast Point? Well, again, yes, the underlying theme of this album is my time in Long Beach, California, because Ballast Point is the name of a beer company, and they've got one of their breweries is in, uh, it's near Long Beach, and uh, had a lovely afternoon there one day, and uh, this song has no words, so, um, you know, I was just kind of trying to think of things along that same theme, and uh, yes, this was a fond memory, so Ballast Point is the name of the song, and the recording, this was actually older, um, this was actually a recording that was, I was like on the fence about putting it on Crystal Coast, and I didn't put it on Crystal Coast, so I, but I liked it, and then, you know, when I was putting this one, I don't know, I figured, you know, why not, I'll put it on there, it's just a short little thing, just a kind of a soothing, soothing, happy little piece of music, I have to say, the initial reason that I made this piece of music, it was probably in 2016. Um, I was thinking, I was like, ah, I, I should, I, I do all this composing work for music libraries. Um, and I was thinking like, oh, I should just like start my own music library and like make my own library of tracks that people that shows can use or license or something so i started making songs like for my own music library um but i kind of abandoned that and this was one of the songs that i had made for my own personal like music library um which looking back like i don't know it's probably i it was probably the right choice to abandon that idea because I do, I do composing work for music libraries. Um, and I make a lot of tracks for music libraries. So, you know, what I was thinking back then was like, well, you know, I could make tracks and have my own library and, you know, keep all the money. But, um, you know, these music libraries are so connected with, you know, shows and just the industry. Like, I would have no idea or no contacts or no skills <laughs> in, like, interfacing with other industry professionals for, like, TV shows and just, like, all of that stuff, all the stuff other than composing the music, like, I would have, I would be so clueless and uh, ill-equipped to do, I think. So probably made the right choice and just do other stuff instead. Um, but yeah, that that that's what that song was. Uh, I was just trying to make a relaxing piece of music. And I think I succeeded. Uh, I mean... If you're not relaxed after you listen to that, well, I don't know. I guess you could maybe you're maybe you could be annoyed by the mallets, by that marimba sound. I don't know. But anyway, if you're annoyed by that song, I'm up up apologize. If you're <laughs> and if you weren't annoyed by that song, maybe you will be annoyed with this song. It's the last song in the album. It's called 
Super Suds. Suds. So, this one was also an older song that I was considering putting on the Crystal Coast album from 2017, but decided not to. And uh, and then when I was putting this album together, I said, "Why the heck not? Put it on there." Uh, so I I put it on this album, and uh, originally. This this song was created uh, because, okay, uh, back in 2015-2016, I was trying to think of ways to like kind of be more self-sufficient and not be relying on these music libraries that I do a lot of work for. Um, just like ways that I could kind of develop as my own personal business for music. So I was, I had reached out to this ad agency, this advertising agency in Pittsburgh, uh, Bruner. And, you know, I was, I was asking them like, you know, where do you get your music from? Like, do you, do you ever need, uh, custom scores for your advertisements? Like, um, you know, this is what I do for a living. Like I could, uh, write music for your, for your ad projects. Um, and there was like semi interested, like I, I did two kind of like trial product commercial songs for them. And they ended up going with, uh, with other stuff. Um, what they ended up saying was that like, you know, usually like we have resources. Um, we just have access to like these stock music libraries and we usually just go with one of those because it's cheaper and faster. So that was the end of that. But this song was originally like my, my tryout kind of ad was a pie commercial, lucky leaf pie filling commercial and I made two songs for the commercial. Neither of them got used. And now both of them are on Chalk Dinosaur albums. The first one was uh, on Crystal Coast. It, it's the song called All Good. That was originally 
written to be the soundtrack to a pie-filling commercial. And I love that song. And this song, Super Suds, that you just heard, that was like the alternate idea that I sent. So I sent those two ideas. And, you know, they didn't go with them. And, you know, they're lost. They could have probably sold a lot more pie-filling. Just kidding. But anyway, I am happy that I retained those songs because now they're both uh, happily residing in the Chalk Dinosaur discography. A bit of an oddball, kind of a super Latin-feeling song, um, which is very out of out of uh, the ordinary for Chalk Dinosaur. But Super Suds, um, the title, another Long Beach reference. Um, when I was living in Long Beach, I had to go to the laundromat, and the laundromat was called Super Suds, and there was a coin shortage, and it was really hard to get coins, and there's no PNC banks out there. So, like, getting coins was surprisingly a challenging task to get the coins to do the laundry. But yeah, I would uh, I would rent a lime scooter and I'd have a garbage bag with my clothes and I'd scooter over to Super Suds and do my laundry. So I don't know, something about Super Suds kind of like seemed fitting with the sound of that song. But um, yeah, that's it. And you know, to be completely transparent here. Those last two songs are a little bit fillers. Um, and the reason I say that is because there's I have this pet peeve about Spotify. Because anything that is less than seven tracks or under 30 minutes gets placed under the singles category of my discography on Spotify. So, like, if I release, you know, when I released the Word of the Soul EP, um, it's a three-song EP, there's, like, three of my favorite songs. Like anytime I release an EP like that, where it's, like, four songs, five songs, it's, like, a body of work, but it doesn't show up under my albums. It doesn't show up under discography. When you click discography, you have to click on singles, and it's it's not a single. So, it really bugs me. So, I just wanted this album to show up under albums. So I had these two other songs that I was considering releasing a couple years ago, and this album was was fitting sonically, so I figured I'd do it and uh, have this album show up under the albums category, which is where it should be. So that's it. That's all seven songs, and... Um, the album artwork that was created by Pittsburgh graphic designer and artist Pseudo Dudo, Riley Mate. Um, Riley Mate is his name, and his artist name is Pseudo Dudo. You know, that's if you Google that, you'll find it. Uh, he's got a really distinct, clean uh, illustration style that, you know, I really like his work and he's also done a lot of work with some uh bands that I really like like uh, Goose and uh 
Wolfpack, and he's done a lot of designs that I uh, admire a lot. So I was happy to have um, one of his designs finally. And there's there's more to come in future releases. My girlfriend Alyssa actually hired him as like a as like a gift to me. Um, she hired him and just to do whatever I wanted, um, which was just to like make a design. Um, so he made uh, made a couple designs for Chalk Dinosaur courtesy of Alyssa which was very nice and useful um because I will be using those designs a lot and um I don't know what else is there to say about this album um no plans of playing any of it live it's just a just a recording project for for uh entertainment for me and um hope you liked it and hope you enjoy listening to it in the future um the album cover is the design for it um it's available on some shirts and random other items like phone cases masks throw pillows etc i just opened i just like started this new online merch store for chalk dinosaur and you can find it um through the link in my instagram page or for for chalk dinosaur or uh chalkdinosaur.com so you could check it out and see what's available there in case you you want anything on there i'm trying this new uh company new like printing merch company called threadless um which I found out about through uh, Starcade Arcade. Starcade Arcade is the indie game studio. I've done like a bunch of work for them and for their games. And um, I went to their merch store and I saw that it was on Threadless. And then I was like, mm, that's interesting. So I like checked out what Threadless was, what they were all about. And it's a, it's a print-on-demand service. So like... I can put my designs up, um, and whenever, and people can order, you know, from anywhere, um, and whenever they order Threadless, they make it, and then they ship it, so it's, uh, it's different, because usually when I do merch, I order through a printing company, local, and I have to estimate how many of each size, I'm going to need how many I think I'm going to sell. And then I usually end up having like a million shirts at my house, just like a bunch of inventory. And then if anyone wants to order one online, then I, you know, get their address, get their payment, go to the post office or UPS or whatever and mail it. So it's kind of like a lot of, um, a lot of like not great things about doing it that way. So this this company appealed to me because I wouldn't have any inventory on hand. Like I wouldn't have any to be store. I wouldn't have to store any inventory on hand. Um, 
and this company takes care of all like of all the shipping so like that takes like two of the biggest factors out so the only factor left is like the quality of the product like is it gonna be are the prints gonna be you know how are they gonna compare to going to a printing shop a local printing shop um so i've ordered some trial products to see how it stacks up and i feel like it'll probably be you know it's probably not going to be as it's it's probably not going to be like the same as ordering from a local print shop but you know i plan on doing both so i plan on having inventory on hand for shows and just for it's always good to have like have that on hand because you know when you run into people and they they want to get something or you have a show and then i plan on having this online store this print on demand store just for for people who are interested in getting some chalk dinosaur merchandise that you know aren't going to be at a show or don't live in the same place as me or want something of a design that i don't have or anything like that seemed like it was worth a try and um some i'm gonna try that i'm also thinking about doing a vinyl pressing through this service called q rates crates um and they operate on a you can do a pre-order type of system so i was thinking like follow me i released an album called follow me 10 years ago on November 11th. So I was thinking like for the 10 year anniversary, I might, I would like to press it to vinyl because it's like the perfect length to fit on a vinyl and um, like a a regular 12 inch vinyl. But the thing that kind of always made me reluctant to try vinyl was, you know, you've got to order a certain quantity and you have to put a lot of money up front to do that and then you've you're really not sure well i'm really not sure if i'm going to be able to sell enough to you know for that to be like financially make sense so but with this company curates um it works on like a pre-order system so it's kind of like if you can get a hundred pre-orders then they'll move forward and press the vinyl if you don't get a hundred pre-orders then you know it just doesn't happen and you know nobody loses any money i don't have to put any money up front um but you know if the pre-order drive like succeeds then you know it gets printed and everybody gets their vinyl and um so it's like a no risk way of printing vinyl which is amazing so i'm um if i can you know get on the ball uh i need to remaster that album for vinyl and uh get the artwork figured out because i i've just got to find like the high high res scan somewhere of the album art and uh, probably have to make a back cover for it. But um, yeah, I honestly have no idea. Like, I have my doubts that I would be able to get 100 pre-orders, which is, you know, 
that's not that many, but at the same time, like, I feel like in 10 years, I haven't sold a hundred CDs. <laughs> like it's, uh, vinyl's different though. We'll see. And I also don't know how many people are fans of that album. Like I know there are some like super fans of that album, but I don't know if there's a hundred of them. So, but the thing is like, if the pre-order drive doesn't work out and I don't reach the, that goal, then it's fine. You know, it just won't get made. And, uh, the only thing that will be hurt is my, uh, confidence. So no big deal. Um, yeah, we got a show coming up December 11th, 2021. It's a Saturday, which I'm pumped about. It's with Shaq Nicholson, which I'm also pumped about. And it's at the Thunderbird, which I'm pumped about. So it's uh, it's got all the ingredients of a really great night, and um, I'm looking forward to it. I'm getting together with the band on Sunday, and we're going to go over... Uh, start working on some new stuff for the show that we haven't played before and um we've got some new ideas in the works get started on that next full band album which i'm excited about because uh this will be the first album with michael berger on the bass so i'm excited to try to write some music with him because he's a very um he's a very musically gifted person and you know, the only other thing I've written with him was the clock or the chalk reads the song, which was on chalk dinosaur and friends. That That's the only piece of music I've ever written with our new bass player, Michael. This was before he was in our band and that's one of my favorite songs ever. So I'm excited to see like what we can come up with. We can, you know, we can put the time and consistency into to developing new music i'm excited to see what could happen with that what else yeah i'm just working on the uh working on the chalk dinosaur sample pack i'm starting a new company or a new like entity called chalk sonics that's gonna be my sample pack company uh gonna sell you know Drum packs, melodic packs, you know, presets for synthesizers and stuff. Um, so I'm going to give that a try. We'll see. It seems like there's there's a lot of opportunity in that world, and I feel like I, I actually know how to make a product for that type of business. So, you know, I, I use them all the time. I buy them all the time. Like, I... I feel like I have a pretty good handle on like what's useful, what's good, um, and then I ha I feel like I have the sound design skills to to make like a useful product for people. So I'm excited just to at least have an idea that I feel like I could do. Um, I feel like doing it is going to be, you know, it's going to it already has required a lot of work just like making the product. But um, selling it, marketing it, that's going to be, that'll be a challenge. Um, but I feel like if I, you know, it can be done. A lot of people have done it. Uh, 
who are making products that I could make the same quality. Um, so I feel like if I can just, um, you know, put in, put in the effort and the research and whatever could be a good, uh, could be a good source of income to add to the other random things I do. But yeah, what else do we got going on here? The uh, been uh Yep, been uh been sitting here in the basement for 12 hours. I think it I think the sun came up today, but I can't tell. I heard the rain pitter-pattering outside the concrete block of the basement. Sounded like a real downpour. And then I got one of those eerie alerts on my phone with that weird <laughs> alert. Tornado warning. Seek shelter. Go to the lowest point in your building. And I saw that and I said, great, I'm in the perfect spot for this. So I'm just going to stay down here and hope the power doesn't go out and make sure I save my project frequently. Yes, but uh, anyway, that is all for this week. Thank you for listening. You've been listening to the Chalk Dinosaur Podcast. My name is John O'Halloran. I'm recording through a Shure SM7B, through a Clark Technic LA-2A clone, and yeah, that's it. Thank you all for listening, and hopefully it won't be too long before the next one. Have a good weekend, y'all. <laughs>